Give Jared a hand. That takes discipline. And uh, pray that was an encouragement to hear the word of the Lord quoted like that. Well, good morning, church. Surprise, surprise. Everybody is gone on vacation this week, and so you are stuck with me, okay? And I'm stuck with you, okay? So I'm excited that you guys are here. Uh, we were supposed to begin our series jumping back into First and Second Corinthians uh, this morning. And when Rob asked me to preach, I went to the preaching schedule and looked at the text that we were supposed to preach on today, which was 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Not a Bible scholar, so I flipped to 1 Corinthians 14 to figure out what the sermon topic would be that morning. And it was Paul's writings to the church on speaking in tongues and worship. And I said, Rob, you can handle that one next week. We're going to extend the series. We're going to do a bonus sermon looking at Psalm 34, uh, which... Uh, at the beginning of the series, we've used, we've looked at the lives of uh, a lot of the people in the Old Testament this summer, uh, but I pray Psalm 34 has been kind of a concrete example. What does it look like to dare to draw near to the Lord? And Jared took me up on my offer uh, to memorize that this summer. We were reading it early on, and I looked over and saw his lips moving, and so I said, Jared, I need you to quote it for the church on the last uh, Sunday that we get to look at this series. So, this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 34, as Jared quoted. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn there with me. So far in this series, we've looked at Jacob and Joshua and Job and Elijah, people what I would call heroes of the faith, people we kind of hold high on a pedestal and say, wow, look at their life, look at their faith, how they trusted the Lord. But I pray during this series, we've actually been able to see some of their brokenness and some of their sin and some of their doubts and some of their fears that made it hard, that made them really have to dare to draw near to the Lord, a holy God, almighty God. And I pray that we've looked at their lives, hopefully in a way that you can actually view them as realistic models, not these people who are so holy and have so much faith that we would never come close to living lives in the ways that they did, in ways that they walked with the Lord. If there's one man, though, that I think that truly lived out what we've been preaching on through this series, and I'm surprised he didn't make the cut. Maybe it's because we talk about him often, probably most familiar with his story is David. And we look at David's life and we're like, man, talk about a man after God's own heart. Talk about someone who is courageous and bold. And yet we read uh, Psalm 51, which is his confession of his sin and his brokenness. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Search me. Uh, and so... I think David really uh, captures the essence of what this looks like. There's actually a synopsis or a summary of what this series is, and we've never even read it in service. Uh, so if you've ever gone online and clicked on resources and sermons to watch a sermon maybe you've missed, uh, this is the summary of the sermon series that is listed, and I'm going to read it for us, uh, better late than never, and uh, tell me this just doesn't sound like the life of David. It says, throughout history... There's a question that people have wrestled with as they have sought after purpose and fulfillment and satisfaction. And that question is, how can we, with all our sin and brokenness, stand in the presence of a holy God? After all, if true purpose and fulfillment and satisfaction come from God, how do we draw near to him when we struggle with our own brokenness and sin? The Bible is full, though, of stories of those who dared to draw near and they were met by a God who desires to draw near to his people. 
So today we're going to look at the Psalms. And I know I'm biased uh, as a worship leader like David, but the Psalms are some of my favorite passages of Scripture. There's 150 Psalms, so there's plenty of content, and uh, they're broken up into five different books. The Psalms are some of my favorite for three reasons. The first is that they are the songs of the people of God that have been preserved and passed down for literally thousands of years. Now, we don't know the melody of the songs. There's no record. There was no sheet music way back then, no hymnals to record. But we have all the lyrics. We have all of the content. And so they've taught us to be the songs of the people of God. And they've been given to us in the scriptures, which is unique because then we're called to then give them back to God in worship and song. The second reason that I like the Psalms is that the Psalms capture uh, all of life's experiences. Not every book in the Bible usually has a theme. Some are for the brokenhearted, some are for the victorious, some are for the hopeful, some are for those in seasons of drought. The Psalms capture all of human life. St. Athanasius uh, said this about the Psalms. He said, the Psalms sing about the whole life of a man, all conditions of the mind, the body, the soul, and all of our thoughts. And so whether you're here this morning, kind of like Brian was talking about, if you're here and you're just ready to praise the Lord, things are going well in your life, there are a lot of psalms for you. But if you're here this morning and you're somewhat weary and brokenhearted, if you're somewhat tired and you're wondering, you know, where is God? There's actually even more psalms for you. If you're here this morning and you have some enemies and you want to curse your enemies, there's some psalms for you. If you want to take the more Jesus approach and bless your enemies, there's a couple psalms for you. There are psalms for every single person in every season of life and of faith, and that is the second reason that I love the psalms. The third reason that the psalms are my favorite passages of Scripture is that they teach us how to pray. So if your prayer life is somewhat stagnant or, or shallow or you don't know what to say or you feel like your prayers aren't really changing anything, you look at your life circumstances and the people and the, the problems that you've prayed over and just nothing is changing Maybe we can look to the Psalms and figure out how the people of God prayed through similar circumstances for thousands of years, and it gives us the words to pray. The Psalms are unique because in all 150, there are five types of prayer, and the Psalms include all of them. The first is adoration, praising God for who he is. The second is confession, like Psalm 51, where we are confessing that we are broken, we are sinful, and yet we, we long to draw near to a holy God. The third type of prayer is petition, where we're praying on behalf of somebody. We're praying on behalf of a circumstance in our life. The fourth is praise, not praising God for who he is, but praising God for what he has done. And the last type of prayer is thanksgiving, praising God not for who he is or what he's done, but praising God for what he has given us, for us to be thankful, the blessings, the grace, and the mercy in our lives. Quick side note, though, on prayer, uh, because I wish someone would have told me this sooner in my faith, in my walk with the Lord, is that prayer is not something uh, that you're just supposed to know how to do. Just because you become a Christian, just because you grow up in a Christian household, prayer is not just something that, oh yeah, we all just know how to do it. It's, it's as simple as talking to God, and it is. That's the elementary, that's where we all start, but prayer is a spiritual discipline. Prayer is a muscle that we have to exercise. Prayer is a mystery of the faith that we, a broken people, somehow get to talk to God directly anytime that we want to, and he hears our prayers, and not only hears them, but he'll actually do something about them. That is a mystery of the faith, that our prayers, when we dig in and really discipline ourselves, can be more consistent. We can pray longer, we can pray deeper, and we can see the power of prayer in our own life. 
And so it's also important to note that uh, the disciples, these were good Jewish boys who had grown up praying three times every single day, and they knew all of the Psalms by heart. And yet when Jesus was praying, they said, Rabbi, teacher, teach us, teach us how to pray like you pray. And so if, that, if that's you today, you want to pray more, you don't know where to start, or you're not familiar with the Psalms, just want to recommend one resource. It's called The Songs of Jesus by Tim Keller. It's a devotion, a short devotion for every single day of the year, and it walks you through all 150 Psalms and has a prayer for each day. And so this could help give you the words to say, not that we're trying to impress God with any of our words, or we're trying to pray more eloquently as if he'll hear us if we pray in this way, but just pray differently. Pray more consistently. Pray in ways, uh, you know, praying in big types of prayers. So I'd recommend this resource. So let's dive into Psalm 34. The first thing that you'll not notice, because your Bibles are in English, not in the original Hebrew, and we thank God that we don't have to read our Bibles in Hebrew or in Greek, uh, is that this psalm is actually an acrostic. It is, uh, each verse starts with the next letter of the Hebrew Bible. So you're not going to notice that as we read it in English. The second thing that you could notice, but you'll probably skip over it because you think it's irrelevant, is that this passage gives us what we wish most passages of Scripture would give us, but they don't, and that's context. And context is, context is king. Jesus is king, so wrestle through that one. But context is important. Why? Because context gives us what the author was trying to mean. When we go to interpret the text, it's too easy to do what's called proof texting, where you don't go through any of the work. You just find a verse. Oh, that sounds really nice. How does that apply to me and my life and my circumstances without doing the work of First, studying and figuring out, okay, what did it mean to them in their time, in their circumstances? And so context is important. And context is given to us and so that we can understand it better. And so it says, of David, when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away and he left. And so now we know who wrote it, David, because not all the Psalms are written by David. Uh, we know when and where he wrote it, which tells us all kinds of information so that when we read it, we can not just read it as words off a page, but we can envision what was going on in David's life, how he was feeling, some of the influences that would make him write in a certain way this song. So here is the background, the context to really understand the psalm, which comes from 1 Samuel it's chapter 21 and 22. David grew up, he was the youngest of eight boys, uh, son of Jesse, tribe of Judah, and uh, all of his brothers were off at war fighting the Philistines in the army of the Lord in Israel, and uh, he was back with the sheep. He was back herding sheep as the youngest, the smallest brother, and his dad tells him to go to his brothers and run some lunch, run some errands uh, for the fight. And I'm sure he went reluctantly, but decided to go. And he gets to the battle line, the front lines, and he finds all of Israel's army in the trenches. Nobody's doing any fighting. And they're all somewhat worried and afraid and fearful. And he looks out onto the battlefield, and he sees this giant of a man called Goliath. And he's like, you know, what's going on? And he says, well, you know, Goliath has put a, a wager on the war that they would give one warrior and we would give one warrior and whoever won the battle would get to enslave the other people and conquer and be victorious. Just one-on-one -on -one fight. And so they sent their biggest, baddest warrior, Goliath. But nobody from Israel wanted to go fight Goliath. 
And you'd think King Saul, I mean, he was a head taller than everyone. He was a fighter. He was the king. He was supposed to lead the people. And yet even the king decided, I'm going to sit this one out, boys. Okay, so David in his courage says one of my favorite passages of scripture. It says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would defy the armies of the living God and with great courage and boldness and daring to trust the Lord with no armor, no shield, no sword, grabs a sling and a few stones, and he goes out on the battlefield. I'm sure Goliath laughed a little bit, said this is going to be pretty easy, it's going to be over quick, but he wasn't laughing anymore when David slung his sling, and that rock hits him right in the forehead, he falls, and David runs up, and he grabs Goliath's sword, and he chops off his head. That's a detail we usually leave out of Sunday school. I hadn't heard that until I was in my teen years, that the head was chopped off. That's how he actually died which is important. There's a lot of spiritual context there of why David chopped the head off of the giant, the Goliath. We won't get into that. Um, And I never saw that on any flannel graphs growing up. There is not a flannel graph of the decapitation of Goliath. So, of course, after he does this, uh, he becomes famous. He becomes a warrior. Everywhere Saul goes, David goes. But what happens is Saul's men and his army and his people begin to trust David more than they do King Saul. Now, when Saul gives an order, they they kind of look over to David and wait for his thumbs up. He begins conquering more and being more victorious than Saul ever was, which, of course, makes Saul very angry and jealous to a point of rage that he decides that he wants to kill David. And it didn't help that there were some women who wrote a song called, David has killed his thousands, or Saul has killed his thousands, but David, he's killed his tens of thousands. That makes things, every, it makes things worse uh, for David after he gets the hint that uh, Saul wants him dead. So he flees as a fugitive of the king, and he runs to a nearby town of Nob, and he finds a priest. And he assumes, okay, I'll be safe here with the, with the priest. This is a house of shalom, of peace. But the priest is like, hey, David, you're probably going to want to leave. I think Saul's pretty, he's going to come over here. He's going to find you, and he wants you dead. He says, okay, well, hold on. Before we leave, me and my men, were hungry. Do you have any food? I appreciate that the first thing on David's mind is just to get something to eat. That's always good. The second thing is he says, well, do you have any weapons? And uh, he says, oh, actually, we actually have Goliath's sword back here. It's all wrapped up. We've been saving it. You can take that. And they're like, awesome. Here's where the story gets really funny. Uh, and I didn't learn this till this week. He then runs to Gath because Gath is a city in Philistine, and so uh, Philistine, and so you assume, okay, the, the king can't come find me here because this is enemy territory. The funny part is Gath is the hometown of Goliath. So he not only runs to his enemies, but he runs to his enemy's enemy's hometown with the evidence of the sword. And it's really funny because one of the guys says, hey, this is David from the song. So even his enemies have heard this song that those women have wrote that Saul killed his thousands, but David killed his ten thousands. And he says, not only did he kill ten thousand, but one of those was our brother, Goliath. And there's the sword to prove it. Okay, let's go ahead and kill him. And in that moment, David, afraid for his life, decides just to act crazy. And I don't know what that looked like. I would love to see it. Uh, But crazy enough that their hatred and anger for him changed from let's kill him to send him as far away from here as possible. I would love to see that. Um, But then he runs to these nearby caves to find uh, some solitude and protection, the caves of Abdullam, where he writes these words. Psalm 34, verse 1. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. 
I'm a terrible sleeper. You can ask my wife. Usually she's in bed by nine, and I am in bed at nine too, but I'll scroll and read articles and watch videos for many hours. It's a terrible habit, but I'm a terrible sleeper. And I fell victim a few years back to a clickbait article. Clickbait, you know, it's like the one thing your dentist doesn't want you to know. It's like, I can't not read that. What does my dentist not want me to know? This article was titled, how to, uh, how to Drink Orange Juice to the Glory of God. When it's 1 a.m., that sounds pretty interesting. So I clicked it, and it's uh, an article on Desiring God. That's uh, the ministry of John Piper. And someone had written into John Piper and said, if we're supposed to do everything we do, uh, whether eating or drinking, to the glory of God, and I assume he thought he was throwing him a zinger, he said, how would you explain drinking orange juice? How do we do that to the glory of God? And it's pretty fascinating. He makes the claim that it's only the Christian who can drink orange juice for the purpose that God intended, because it's only a Christian that believes that God exists, that God is creator, that God has created us uh, and gifted us with food for the earth to provide food for us, that God has created our bodies to digest and to eat and taste buds to taste its sourness and sweetness and provided the hands and the laborers to gather the fruit and all the things. It's only a Christian then that can drink orange juice to the glory of God. And it's only a Christian then who can take something like orange juice and turn it into an opportunity to worship the Lord at all times, to praise him, to do everything everything you do for the glory of God, whether you're just eating or whether you're just drinking. And I found that interesting because if we only had the same conviction and perspective on something as simple as orange juice, I think we would be all the better for it. You see, when I first read these verses, the the emphasis is on the word all. I will extol, I will worship the Lord at all times. But I think the more I've reflected on my own life and season of life is we've been created by God in his image, and therefore we're all worshiping all the time. We're worshiping something. And so I think the, question, the emphasis really on that first verse should be, I will worship the Lord at all times. Because what I find myself is that when I'm not worshiping the Lord, I'm usually worshiping myself. And so the challenge and the difficulty of living out this verse is not worshiping all the time, because we are worshiping the Lord at all times. Second thing there in verse 3, which is interesting, uh, can also be translated, oh, magnify the Lord with me. So when someone praises God, they can't help but want to draw others. That's why we're here. That's what we do as a community, as brothers and sisters, is we try to encourage one, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Yes, we can draw near on our own, but hopefully you found that deeper and more fellowship, koinonia type of fellowship of the church when we draw near together. But the word magnify is kind of interesting because if you think about a magnifying glass, it makes an object appear bigger. It doesn't actually make the object any bigger, which is the truth that we as Christians, we as God's people, we can't make God any bigger, but what? But we can change our perspective of God. We can magnify him so that he appears bigger, so that he's not this distant thing. That we, well, that's God. We can look closer in the details of his nature and who he is up close. When we feel like he's far away, we can magnify the Lord in appearing as if he's closer, even though he's always with us. Uh, An Anglican bishop, George Horn, said, The Christian not only himself magnifies God, but exhorts, encourages others to do likewise, and longs for that day to come when all nations and languages, laying aside their contentions and animosities, their prejudices and their errors, their unbeliefs, their heresies, their schisms, the things that divide us, laying all those aside, shall make their sound to be heard as one in magnifying and exalting their great Redeemer's name together. 
I found this quote reading some of the sermons of Charles Spurgeon this week. I think it's one of the best quotes I've ever heard on worship and praise. It's a little long, but it's so good. I want to read it for you as well. Praise, like prayer, is one of the greatest means of fostering spiritual growth. Praise helps lift our burdens, strengthen our hopes, increase our faith. It is a healthy, invigorating exercise that quickens the pulse of believers, preparing us for new ventures in our master's service. Blessing God for the mercies we have received is also a way to benefit our fellow man, for the afflicted will hear and rejoice. Others who have experienced similar circumstances will take comfort if we can say, glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Even this poor man called and the Lord heard him. Weak hearts will be strengthened, and downcast saints will be revived as they listen to our songs of deliverance. Their doubts and fears will be rebuked as we teach one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. They too will begin to sing the ways of the Lord when they hear us magnify his holy name. So good. If you're going to be a person then who dares to draw near to the Lord, you must first worship the Lord. So say that after, after me. I will worship the Lord at all times. If you're going to dare to draw near and be that kind of a person, walk with the Lord in that kind of way, you then also must seek the Lord. So say that after me. I will seek the Lord. Psalm 34, verse 4. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. Even this poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. So taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. I think the best way to illustrate uh, and explain what is David, that is the result, those verses we just read, is the result of a life that draws near to the Lord. But the question is how? How did David do that? How did David get those kind of results in his life? Well, the best way is with David's words also in Psalm 32, when he says this, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. For when I kept silent, when I refused to draw near to the Lord, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them, because you are my hiding place. You are my refuge. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. This is what it looks like to seek the Lord. This is the results of a sinful person, a broken person, a person just like you and me who chooses to worship the Lord and to seek the Lord at all costs, daring to draw near to a holy God. And if it's possible for somebody like David, it's possible for us to to be men and women after God's own heart. So repeat this after me. I will worship the Lord. I will seek the Lord. Psalm 34, 9. Fear the Lord. You, his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions, even those who feel they are so strong and have life together, even they may grow weak and hungry. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. 
So come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it, because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to blot out their name from the earth. Everyone say, I will fear the Lord. I've heard that my whole life growing up and, in, and understood it in what I believe to be a healthy way, that fearing the Lord is not this, I'm scared of what God could and can do to me if I don't obey him, if I don't trust him, if I don't even believe in him. That is not what fearing the Lord means. Understanding it more in a way uh, that is rooted in God's love, rooted in a way that honors him and is reverent towards the fact that he is God and I am not. Uh, we've heard this morning from St. Athanasius. We've heard from Charles Spurgeon. There's another modern-day theologian that we need to include in the conversation, and that is Michael Scott from The Office. And uh, I think he's got a pretty good idea of what does that mean to fear the Lord as a boss. He was asked, uh, would you rather be feared or loved as a boss? And he responded with, easy, both. I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. The first part sounds like a question, I was reflecting on that, sounds like a question that the Pharisees would have asked Jesus. Does God want to be feared or does he want to be loved, loved uh, thinking that those are mutually exclusive, that we either obey him and submit to him or we have grace and we love him? And the answer I think Jesus would have said is easy. God wants both. So thank you, Michael Scott, for your words of theological wisdom. Uh, but it was David's sermon in the last couple of weeks uh, that really opened my eyes in a new way that I've never heard preached before in a way that opened my eyes and emphasized when we think about fearing the Lord, we think about respect. And we think about respecting who? Not this holy God, respecting our Father in heaven. And that really opened my eyes. Uh, even understanding the idea of sin is what we're doing disrespecting uh, our heavenly Father. I have a father. I love him because I know that he loves me. He raised me, provided for me, expects many good things out of me and has set a standard of excellence. And therefore, I try, I try to live my life to honor him and to respect him and his authority. And if that's true of my heavenly father, who is not perfect, uh, shouldn't that be even more exponentially true of our heavenly father? And so fearing the Lord is reverent and he's holy and submit to his authority, but we respect him uh, as our heavenly father because he first loved us. So everybody say that with me. I will worship the Lord. I will seek the Lord. I will fear the Lord. And I will trust the Lord. Verse 17. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears him. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all of his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord will rescue his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. I heard something once a few years ago that has always stuck with me, and it's this phrase, don't have faith because you read it in a book. Don't have faith because of something you read in a book. And what does that mean, at least to me, is when we read a passage of scripture, sometimes we believe it's true only because we've read it so many times. We've read it over and over. We've heard it, heard it 
preached many times. I think of something like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Well, until you really need a shepherd, until you view yourself as a sheep, until you walk through the valley, I don't think you really believe. Your faith is just built upon something that you read in a book. And this is one of those passages for me that I not only have read many times, this is a common passage that, you know, when you Google how to comfort somebody who's, who's hurting with scripture, this passage will pop up that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted, that he rescues those who are crushed in spirit. And it's sometimes, and with good intention, we just speak that over somebody to try to encourage them. But until you've seen the truth of scripture come alive in your life, your faith is just built upon something that you read in a book, something that was read, that was written thousands of years ago. This is one of those passages for me that I understood it here. I knew the truth and the theological, all the things of God. But this is a passage that I now believe here in my heart because I've had to walk through it and know what does that feel like to be brokenhearted? What does that feel like to be crushed? And to know that God is near. If you remember back uh, in January, uh, I had a hard Sunday. I showed up Uh, still processing things that were going on in my life during the week. And it was hard to sing. It was hard uh, to lead worship. It was hard to be present here at the church. But I had a job to do, and I needed to lead and to be here and to help you all worship. But for me, it was really hard. Uh, I hadn't shared with the staff or the elders or really anybody except our families what was going on. And like God always does, he just allows me to process my emotions in front of a large group of people. And that's always fun when he decides to, to do that. Um, fast forward then to oh, one note. I really appreciate Rob even not knowing what was going on before his sermon just came up and he prayed over me. Uh, and that meant a lot. Fast forward then uh, to May and to Mother's Day. And uh, my wife uh, ended up writing an article or a reflection called A Mother's Day Reflection for the Brokenhearted. And that shared our story that uh, Christmas of that year, uh, we were able to surprise our parents in telling them that we were expecting, that we were pregnant. And uh, it was early. We were still worried about it. We hadn't been to the doctor yet, but it was Christmas. We hadn't bought any other gifts. This was kind of our one thing. It's it's the only thing they really wanted. And uh, so we told them and we were excited and just, and all of that. So then come January 12th on that Tuesday, uh, we went into our first doctor's appointment only to find out that two weeks uh, earlier, uh, at the six-week mark, uh, the baby had stopped growing. Uh, there was no heartbeat, and uh, we were crushed. Uh, we uh, were brokenhearted. We cried out and uh, cried out to God, only then to uh, write these words that my wife wrote. I think she said it way better than I did. In her reflection, she said, uh, it felt unreal, but too real at the same time. Tears fill my eyes now when thinking back to that day because it wasn't supposed to go that way. I knew miscarriages were common. One in four women will have a miscarriage. But I didn't actually think that would happen to me. There was nothing I could do to fix it. There was nothing I did wrong to cause it. It was all out of my control, and that felt tragic. And this is the cool part. She said, but I reminded myself of Psalm 34 because we're called to love and honor the Lord at all times because he deserves that praise. He deserves the glory. But it later says the righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all of their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. A reminder, a reminder 
that we're allowed to have those mixed emotions. We're allowed to both worship the Lord at all times and mourn and cry out. We had no other choice but to trust the Lord. And we can now just not read that passage of Scripture, but really believe that He does draw near to the brokenhearted, that He does deliver those who are crushed in spirit, those who are devastated. When we needed God, He was there for us in our time of need. And He encouraged us through the Holy Spirit, of course, giving us this peace, uh, even through tears. He encouraged us through you all, our church family. He encouraged us through a wonderful staff I get to work with. Uh, Many women here in this church and parents reached out to us to share similar circumstances that they've walked walked through, and that was encouraging for both of us. This isn't our, just our story that we're sharing, but truly a testimony of God's faithfulness that he does rescue his servants and that when us who are in Christ cry out as his children, those who have been adopted, like any good father, he hears, and he not just hears, but he does something about it. He comforted us in ways that those outside of Christ I mourn for who can't be comforted in those ways, who live in the questions of why and live in the tension of sorrow. So it's not just our story that we tasted and saw that the Lord is good, that he dared us in our moment of weakness to draw near to the Lord. And we did. But it's encouraging this morning uh, to get to announce to you all that uh, Caitlin is actually 15 weeks pregnant today. So <laughs> exciting. The picture on our right is from the gender reveal, so we'll be having a boy. This is excellent, okay? The Faust name lives on. I'm the last one, okay? God dared us to taste and see, but here's what I'm not saying. Please do not hear this because I had already written this in the sermon and shared this last service, but uh, last service, during the invitation time, uh, I was able to pray with a couple uh, who had experienced a miscarriage a year uh, and four days ago, and to, to hear this... To see an announcement, I'm sure there's still even many women here, parents here who want to be parents, they're waiting for a child, they've experienced that miscarriage, and it's hard. Um, So here's what I'm not saying. If you worship the Lord, if you seek the Lord, you fear Him and you trust Him, you get to announce a pregnancy as well. We had to do all of those things, living in the what if. Will we trust Him, even if He doesn't allow us to be parents in the ways that we want to be? Will we seek him and fear him and his authority and his will for our lives, even if it doesn't look like what we want our lives to look like? And I was able just to hopefully encourage her and just a reminder that, you know, one of the songs that I like to sing is, if your story isn't good, then your story isn't over. But the story, you don't get to write the story. And that's God's business. And he will do what he pleases with our lives. Um, And we may, like Sarah last week in the sermon, we may laugh at the plans that he has for our life, but his plans are for our good and plans for our hope and our future. And so please do not hear me in saying that. And obviously she was hurt and really triggered with with sharing that. Uh, And I just wanted to be sensitive because I know personally uh, the pain uh, that something like that could do. But I'm excited to get to share that with you all, uh, my church family here. So one last time, let's all say it together. If you want to live a life that dares to draw near to the Lord, say, I will worship the Lord. I will seek the Lord. I will fear the Lord. I will trust the Lord. I will dare to draw near to the Lord. Amen.
Let's pray. Father God, I am thankful to just be here and to preach and to encourage and to give life and to share your truth of who you are and what you have done uh, in and through us and our church family here with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray this morning that this message was encouraging, that it was uplifting and called us not to look at our own lives, but called us to fix our eyes upon you and who you are and what you have done for us. Father, I pray you would help us worship you at all times, whether things are going well or things are hard, whether we are rejoicing or whether we are mourning. Father, put your praise on our lips. And Father, I pray we're then faithful to return that worship to you. But thank you for the Psalms, a reminder that it is, it's okay to cry. It's okay to mourn. And Father, not only is it okay, you've actually given us the prayers and given us the words to come before you and to question you and to complain and to cry out uh, as your children, as we do. Father, I'm thankful this morning. I pray our worship in this, this sermon honored you. And I pray all of this, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll do something a little different this morning is we're going to have a time of invitation. So if that's you, if there's something in you or you're like, I do. I want to seek the Lord. I want to worship him all the time. And I haven't been. I want to draw near to that kind of a God. Then I'd love to talk with you. I'm going to go out in the back doors. And if our conversation, it's like, yeah, I want to be so close to the Lord that I want to get baptized. I want to give my life to following after Jesus so that I will worship him all the time. I'll seek and fear him and trust him even with my own life. We'd love to do that. That would be exciting. But most of us in the room probably have already made that decision and are following Jesus. And sometimes we just need somebody to talk with and to pray with. And so as I did last service, I'll just walk through those doors. And if I can be an encouragement and pray with you, I'd love to. After the service, I'll just be down here up front and would love to do the same. So let's stand together as the Lord invites us to worship.